1: That's Wise W-I-S E dot
2: com. Wise.com. Hey, it's Sean Elling. Maybe you heard. I'll be taking over as a full-time host in October. But I'm off for the next couple weeks, and I wanted to tell you about a really interesting four-part series you'll hear while I'm gone. It's an exploration of reparations and what that might look like in America. The series is hosted by my colleague, Vox Policy Reporter Fabiola Sinus. And it was made possible by a grant from the Canopy Collective and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.
3: I'm Fabio Licinius. I write for Vox about race and policy. And today, I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations. 40 Acres. Reparations is about a debt that the federal government owes to all
4: Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. As a consequence of the failure to provide the 40-acre
1: land grants.
4: It involves the historic acknowledgement of historic wrong and a recognition that the injury continues.
1: Literally, there is no reparations in the form of the payout of money. that can undo what has been done.
2: I think apologies don't mean anything whatsoever. I mean, apologies are the easiest thing in the world. This is
5: returning what was taken from a people.
3: Over the next couple of weeks, we'll explore why the conversation about reparations for Black people has reignited over the past few years, and if a federal reparations program is a policy proposal whose time has finally come. We'll explore what reparations are and why countless thinkers and activists have called on the government to produce them since the end of slavery. Many people point to the nearly 100 years of Jim Crow and ongoing discrimination as further evidence that a program of compensatory redress is necessary. We'll examine what a reparations program could look like, including who would get them, and how the government would finance it we'll take a look at some examples of reparatory justice already underway in the United States. Of course, we'll get into some hard questions too. Like when it comes to individual cash payments, what amount of money can compensate for centuries of slavery? And though a majority of Black Americans support reparations, many white Americans don't. How popular does the policy need to be among white Americans before the federal government acts?
0: Welcome back to the CNN Democratic
3: presidential debate, live from Detroit. Reparations became a campaign issue during the 2020 election cycle. Candidates at the local and national levels gave their stances on cash payments to the descendants of the formerly enslaved.
4: It's $500 billion, dollars, 200 to $500 billion, dollars payment of a
3: debt that is owed. That is what reparations is. Presidential candidate Marion Williamson went as far as outlining a specific plan, while others, including Bernie Sanders, faced criticism for rejecting the idea outright.
0: Sanders, you don't think cash payments are the best way to address this issue, but according to a new Gallup poll, 73% of African Americans are in favor of cash payments to Black Americans who are descendants of
2: slaves. How do you respond? At to the that?
3: time, then presidential candidate Joe Biden often deflected.
2: The truth of the matter is the I've from the time I've gotten involved, I've been trying to do things that deal with the systemic racism that still exists.
3: Even though Biden never came out in support of reparations, he did promise that his administration would support a study of the measure. But nearly two years into his presidency, Biden has yet to follow through. Some want the president to act via executive order. Some say the current bill to create a study is riddled with problems. And others strongly doubt that reparations would be helpful for Black Americans at all. It's a lot to grapple with, and we're here to have those hard conversations. In this first episode, we talk about the renewed case for reparations. Some advocates say that racial disparities in income, wealth, health outcomes, education, and home ownership can be traced from slavery to the present day. And the killings of unarmed black Americans like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery launched the start of a new reckoning. To explore all this, I sat down with Nikichi Taifa. Nikichi is an attorney, activist, and educator and has advocated for reparations for decades. She's the founder and director of the nonprofit Reparation Education Project. Back in the 80s, she helped found COBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, an organization that helped the late U.S. Representative John Conyers write H.R. 40, the congressional bill that would create a federal commission to study reparations. I started out asking her a simple but important question. What are reparations?
4: Reparations are what is owed for human rights abuses, usually in the aftermath of war or other gross injustices, such as enslavement. But also to the descendants of those who were adversely impacted as well. In the context of Black people in this country, aren't we say that reparations are for injustices, not just for the enslavement era, but for its living legacies that continue down through to today. It involves the historic acknowledgement of historic wrong and a recognition that the injury continues. It involves a commitment to redress. It also involves all the culpable parties, whether it's the United States government, state and local governments, academic or religious institutions, corporations, private estates, any entity that was culpable and has accrued unjust enrichment from
3: the era. So you've been in the reparations advocacy space for 50 years. So I'd love to start at the beginning. What drew you to the fight for reparations?
4: I came up during the time, after the civil rights era, I guess you could say what I call the Black Power era. Black is beautiful in the like. When Black studies started coming into the classrooms, my parents were educators. There were always books in our house, and I opened up a book once that was called A Pictorial History of the Negro in America. And I'm flipping through the pages and I see a young boy, you know, 14 years old, who was murdered, found at the bottom of Mississippi's Tallahatchie River. Sunday morning before day, my baby was taken from his uncle's home and my aunt's home. And I found out about... Of course it it was Emmett Till. But I was shocked. I'm thinking that all of these injustices had happened way back millions of years ago, but actually it was in my own lifetime. So I'm a teenager now, I'm being mesmerized by the Black Panther Party. and, And I used to go down to the office, which at that time was down the street from Howard University, and I used to help sell their newspapers on the streets of Washington, D.C. every Saturday. First of all, let me just be clear. I was never a panther. Okay. <laughs> I always say I just loved sitting on the lap of that fine brother who was supposed to be pulling security in the front office. <laughs> but I would go with them every Saturday downtown and sell their papers. And one very hot <laughs> Saturday, I just... Was tired and I just sat down on the curb and I actually opened up the paper. <laughs> I'm flipping through and I'm, I come upon their 10 point program what we want, what we believe.
2: One, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our own Black communities. Two, we want full employment for our people.
4: And point number three always stood out in my mind.
2: want the end to the robbery of the Black community by the white racist businessman.
4: And it basically said that we believe that this racist government has robbed us and we are now demanding our overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. I don't know where the two came from. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 40 acres and two mules. And from that point, it just it just struck me what all that that we have been through. I could feel even at that young age, I could just feel within my ancestral bones, I guess you could say, these slavery errors, inhumanity towards people, towards children. And I vowed that I wanted to be part of this movement. I wanted to be part of of justice. (laughs) And that's really what my life ended up being about struggling and striving and advocating for justice.
3: Mm. And did that experience with seeing that in the paper, did that Kind of make you more curious about your own family's history and its, its connection to enslavement? Like, what's that story?
4: One of the things I found is that a lot of times, folks don't like to talk about the past. Yeah. So I remember as a young person, I asked my mommy, I said, Well, what was it like to ride in the back of the bus? And she said, Well, Niti, you know, I didn't ride in the back of the bus. I was from New York and they didn't have that up there. And it's like, I always wanted to kind of divorce yeah. from the reality of what was going on and what was happening. So I'm like, like pulling teeth, trying to get information out of my mother about what life was like under Jim Crow. I mean, I grew up under it, but I grew up in D.C. And I was sheltered. There was this amusement park in D.C. called Glen Echo. And I wanted to go to Glen Echo. I didn't understand why we could not go to this amusement park. You know, no one said, well, it was segregated or, you know, there were issues uh, involved with that. It's like we have to stumble upon, unfortunately, the reality of our history. And I just did not want youth who came after me to have to stumble upon our history. So was there
3: a point when your family did finally sit you down and your mom was like, I'm from New York? Did she tell you about her ancestors? Like, did they migrate from somewhere to be in New York? So I will say
4: I honestly found out things piecemeal. My mother's family's from New York. Her parents were island immigrants from St. Kitts, came in the, like the late 1800s. Wow. I did not know. It was only recently within the past couple of years that I found out that my grandfather was part of the Marcus Garvey movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. I, all I knew that my uncle would talk about Garvey a lot, but I didn't know that he was a young boy following around his father, my grandfather, who was an actual part of the Garvey movement. My mother didn't talk about any of this. And
3: you talk about how reparations back then, when we think about like the Black Power movement, reparations was this radical term back then. It was something that was fringe that people didn't really say that often. So can you explain what that was like for reparations to be this radical and fringe term?
4: Reparations was radical and fringe, but it was on the platform of just about any and Every organization that was dealing with black folk back then in the 60s and 70s. The Nation of Islam had their uh, program. They talked about reparations. They talked about no taxation as long as we are deprived of equal justice. The Republic of New Africa had it within its Declaration of Independence. We claim no rights from the United States other than those rights belonging to human beings anywhere in the world. And these include the right to damages. Reparations do us. Even Martin Luther King, come on now, he talked about coming to Washington to cash that check. I mean, it was. <laughs> (laughs) little bit more behind that than just rhetoric. It became mainstream with the organization that I was a founder of in 1987, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America.
3: Yeah. Can you take us back to 1987? And you helped in COBRA that year. So what was that like? Like who was coming together? And what was the impetus behind that?
4: I was involved with one formation in particular called the Republic of New Africa. And I also had recently become a lawyer at that time. Mm. And I was part of an organization called the National Conference of Black Lawyers. In 1987, the National Conference of Black Lawyers called a convening at Harvard Law School to ask the question about reparations, about whether a constitutional amendment was necessary to effectuate reparations. And each of us agreed that There is no need for a constitutional amendment to effectuate reparations because the authority of it is already there in the constitution. The 13th amendment, the second section after neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist that Congress will have the power to enforce this with appropriate measures. That is the authority within the constitution if nothing else for reparations. So around that time, right after that conference, Amario Bedelli issued a call for all reparations loving people to come to Washington to talk about this
2: issue of reparations. They decided that we would try to call together black people from across this country to see if we could form a coalition that was not just land-based nationalists like myself, but that spread out to the sororities and the fraternities, the churches to spread out to all groups.
4: What we wanted to do was to take it out of the fringes and mainstream the reparations movement, make reparations a household word and term. And people came from all over to strategize. Around this time was the same time that there were discussions and debates going on in Congress with respect to the Japanese American reparations bill, which ultimately passed in 1988.
5: Thank you all very much. Members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave
1: wrong.
4: So the organization that was formed in 1987 was in Cobra, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. And yes, it was heavily dominated by the French, yeah, and, you know, the revolutionary yeah. black nationalists and all like that. <laughs> but it also had the lawyers, professional organizations, the National social uh, uh, Black Social Workers and black political scientists and the NAACP, religious organizations, fraternities and sororities. all of these groups flocked together. And it was like a perfect storm because we had this bill that had just been passed. So there was a precedent for reparations. Congressman John Conyers called us together and said, look, let's strategize on how we can do what was done using as a model from the Japanese American reparations bill and wield it to our own benefits. There was Disagreement with respect to that strategy because the Japanese Americans first called for a commission to study the issue. They didn't outright call for reparations. Okay. They first called for a commission to study. And then after that study came the recommendation. So John Kanye said, Well, let's do this commission, this federally chartered commission to study the issue. Surely no one can disagree. With a study and strategically, at least at that time, over 30 years ago, it made a hell of a lot of sense. Some of the groups didn't agree with that approach and decided to go their separate ways. The majority of us within Encobra, however, said, OK, let's try this group. So as a result, and we're talking about the end of the 20th century, the late 80s, and all throughout the 90s, we had city councils all over the country endorsing H.R. 40, the Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African Americans. And what was it like to
3: advocate for reparations back then, when there was so much pushback to like ideas like affirmative action, and we still see pushback to affirmative action today? Can you talk about just any kind of pressure you faced to not be talking about reparations?
4: Oh yeah, I was constantly laughed at and ridiculed. I said, "Oh, you did go to again." But it's interesting, Rabbi Yoli, because never did I dream that the seeds that I was planting back in those days where I was ridiculed and ostracized and all like that, that I just might be able to stand under the shade of those trees that were planted with those seeds. Mm. So, you know, it's like, how do you keep your eyes on the prize?
3: Mm.
4: Keep struggling when it seems like all the odds are against you. You do it because there's just a profound sense within you, within your bones for justice.
3: And you say that reparations is an idea whose time has come. Why now?
4: I call George Floyd the Emmett Till of the 21st century. Emmett Till served to galvanize not only people in this country, but across the world to see the injustices that was happening here. I think the election of Donald Trump had a lot to do with this as well, because I think the blinders were stripped off of people's (laughs) eyes that, well, maybe we're not quite in this kumbaya moment that we thought we were in, January 6th, insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, people saw raw, naked violence Mm -hmm. by white people who seemed to have the same, like a continuous strand from the mentalities from the past. And I think masses of Black people are waking up and saying, well, reparations needs to be part of this mix as well. This is now an issue whose
3: time has come. How does it feel that reparations are getting so much attention right now, especially as someone who's been in this space for so long? Like, is that something you welcome, or are you afraid that we're, we're watering down the conversation?
4: Hey, it it really is an exhilarating feeling to be in the company of some of the leading economists and psychologists, psychiatrists, attorneys, talking about the need for and the right to reparations. I feel vindicated. People are becoming educated. Organizations are forming. They're white allies, white ally groups Mm. who are mobilizing in support of reparations the japanese american community they have acknowledged consistently that their inspiration for their struggle and fight for reparations came from the black movement Um, and so we're seeing again i think in my humble opinion another perfect storm mm -hmm. there's a perfect storm that's aligned in congress i wish it would really seriously be taken advantage of where the Democrats control the House, the Senate, as well as the presidency. What better constellation of stars can there be to finally get H.R. 40 passed and over the hump? It can happen by the stroke of a pen.
3: Next, we'll dive into the long history of the reparations movement.
2: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it
1: In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot wise.com. wise.com.
3: so nikichi even before you got into the space there were people in generations before you who advocated for reparations can you walk us through some of this history like right we even have people like thomas jefferson alluding to reparations we have the quakers in the space so just take us back to the end of the civil war reconstruction, and just where we were with reparations back then.
4: Okay, so right after the end of the Civil War, actually near the end, General Sherman sat down with a group of Black ministers in the South and said, what is it that you want? And unquestionably, each of them said that they wanted land. And that is where the genesis of the 40 Acres came from. And he asked them another question. He said, Well, do you want to stay amongst us, amongst the white folks? And almost to all but one, I think, said, No, we want to go off to ourselves and develop our own and till our land because they knew what the terror that they had been under. And they weren't ready to just say, Well, we're going to just kumbaya and join all in. Even though that whole 48% and a mule made it into the Freedmen's Bureau. After the assassination of President Lincoln, it all went by the wayside. And those that had been allotted land, it was taken back and given to the Confederates. Earlier than that, this was during the 1700s, actually, Mm. Belinda Sutton Royal in Massachusetts sued for a portion of her former enslaver's estate, an estate, I might add, that she had a whole lot with helping to build. She went to court and she actually won. What she was given was just a pittance, but that was like the first recorded case, I guess you could say, for our reparations. Yeah, But those were isolated instances. And the harm was done to Black people as whole, the masses of the community. And it was Kelly House and Isaiah Dixon with this first mass-based movement. One of the early disciples of Marcus Garvey was someone who later became known as Queen Mother Audley Moore. I was asking for $200 billion for the injury that we have received, the injury as as a result of our enslavement. From way back then in the 20s, she was a Garveyite, and she carried the issue of reparations all throughout her life, influencing just about every single organization. Up until her death in 1997, there was Reparations Ray Jenkins out of New York, who talked about reparations all the time to his congressman, John Conyers.
2: Now I'm asking for $40 billion for the United States government putting a
4: trust fund to give Afro-American a free scholarship to any school or any college or university of their choice. There's never been a time when Black people did not call for reparations, call for reparatory justice. It's only now, though, that The masses of people, I guess you could say, have caught on to the issue. After the end of the enslavement period, you know, Black people were really talking about human rights. Okay. It kind of got watered down to civil rights. But what we were really talking about was human rights. And reparations is one of those human rights. After the enslavement era, we had choices under international law. That should have been part of our province. We had a right to go somewhere, anywhere. We had that right to go there with damages, with reparations. We had the right to accept the U.S. offer of citizenship with the 14th Amendment. They never asked us if we wanted to join this new white nation that was coming up. Now, many of us would have said, yes, we do want to join. Right, yeah but they wanted to join as equals. They didn't want to just have a piece of parchment on paper that says that if you're born or naturalized in the United States, you're a citizen of the United States. The problem is we would never allow the human right of Mm self-determination to any of those choices. And each one of those choices should have been accompanied with reparations. Those who want to try to really, really strive To make this multiracial democracy as citizens of the United States a reality? should have the reparations to be able to effectuate that. Changes in basic public policy that have been stripped from us. And we say all of these are choices that can and should be part of a reparations package for the victims. It should not be upon the perpetrator to say, well, your reparation is going to be a scholarship. Well, for some people, that might be what they want. Right. But the decision needs to come from the injured parties themselves. And that's the stage, Fabiola, that we are at right here, right now, today. What are we supposed to make of the instances when the United States actually
3: compensated white Americans? Like, for example, there's the case of when the U.S. government paid $25,000 in reparations to the families of Italian men who were lynched in New Orleans. How should we be interpreting that in the context of everything you just said?
4: I was absolutely shocked when I found out about what happened with respect to those 11 Italian lynching victims. I mean, it is a slap in the face. How many black folk have been lynched? Mm. It makes you feel less than human to know that every other people receive redress for atrocities committed against them. But we don't. You lead the
3: Reparation Education Project. First of all, can you talk more about that? Like, what is it like educating people about reparation? Like, what's the first thing you hear When you're talking to someone about reparations and specifically someone who might be new and just be trying to understand what reparations even are.
4: Now it's expanded so very widely and a lot of people just don't know exactly what it is, what to make of it. It should not be mistaken or substituted for what I call basic public policy that should be happening anyway and involving everyone. Reparations is that something extra, that's something special where you are connecting the dots back to the enslavement era. Basically, reparations are forms of compensation that are provided. To those who have suffered human rights abuses or other forms of widespread systemic injustices, or to their descendants, mm. and usually in the aftermath of war or slavery or other forms of gross injustice. In the context of Black people in this country, reparations constitutes four elements. Number one, the formal acknowledgement of historic wrong and an official unfettered apology for the dehumanization and atrocities of the enslavement era and and beyond. And I say unfettered because the House of Representatives and the Senate did pass bills apologizing for slavery. But guess what? The Senate bill contained a proviso that said, you cannot use our apology to justify any claim for reparations. Number two, the recognition that the injury has continued throughout the years and still manifests today. Number three, the commitment to redress by the federal government, which sanctioned the enslavement and subsequent segregation, and by state and local governments and other culpable parties, which enjoyed unjust enrichment from the era. And then number four, the actual compensation in whatever form or forms are agreed upon and moreover, the U.S. must adhere to the five internationally accepted norms for reparations that, that are inclusive of the requirements of cessation and guarantees of non-repetition, meaning part of the reparations package must be, you cannot do this to us again. Mm. It's not just about closing the Black-white wealth gap. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it. But there was so, so much more that was taken Besides our labor that was stolen from us, our minds, whole education processes, our health, the the trauma, the trauma, my sister, is traveling throughout our genes, the epigenetic inheritance, just traveling, all that trauma is still
3: there. I'd love to go into what I call a rapid fire round because there are so many things when when people hear about reparations proposals, there are so many like ideas that they kind of throw back to try to understand it or maybe refute reparations. So the first idea is wouldn't reparations only create more animosity between the races in a country where there's already so much racial tension?
4: more animosities, there's already animosities without reparations. I think reparations will be a healing a modality, But again, education has a lot to do with it. We don't have no reparations and we see what happened on January 6th. Mm. Okay, we don't have no reparations and we see the masses of people who voted for Trump. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how much more worse can it be? I think with reparations, we can be about the necessary task of rectifying these issues that have remained unsolved and uncorrected since the end of the Civil War. So next
3: idea is that Reparations would compel groups of people who had nothing to do with slavery to foot the bill. For example, groups who immigrated to the United States well after slavery was over.
4: I had absolutely nothing to do with the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, yet my tax dollars helped to pay that reparations bill. White people, regardless of when they arrived in this country, might not have had anything to do with the enslavement era, might not have participated in bedlining, might never have lynched anyone. In fact, hopefully, most of them have never lynched anyone. But they benefit from a society, a state, a social structure, which is governed by what we call white supremacy. Just as a basis on the color of their skin, they are benefiting. And so, regardless of when they arrived or regardless of their guilt or innocence, the debt is due. And I've heard Mitch McConnell say this one.
5: Yeah, I, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, we tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we elected an African American president. Uh, I think. We're always a work in progress in this country, uh, but no one currently alive was responsible for that.
3: And- Hasn't America already paid its debt for slavery by waging the Civil War? Like, didn't we already shed blood? And by electing Barack
4: Obama, right? <laughs> right, and by, by having a, the first black president of the United States. Yeah, Mitch McConnell needs to come clean about his own ancestry. His grandparents on both sides, maternal and paternal, were slaveholders. We all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Though the present generation of whites may be innocent of what their forefathers and their foremothers did, again, they benefit from this white supremacist country. They benefit from all of the benefits that are
3: accrued. Another one. Why should Black people get reparations when there are so many other groups in the country who would have strong claims for reparations, but they're not even asking for much right now?
4: Each group determines their own course for their healing. The Japanese Americans received reparations pursuant to the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. We talked about the families of those 11 Italian lynching victims, and it goes on. I will say that all oppressed peoples need to be allies. And one group does not need and should not be pitted against the other group.
3: And what about the argument that the reparations that were paid to Holocaust victims or to survivors of Japanese internment, they were paid directly to the people who were harmed or to their immediate family. So that means that these cases aren't exactly precedent for reparations for Black people since slavery was so many generations ago.
4: Yeah, well, it's not the fault of Black folk that (laughs) we're generations later. Society should not be able to benefit for their unjustness in not rectifying this sooner. And as such, the remedy should not be eradicated as a result of that. If there were no, there had been no lingering legacies, vestiges from the enslavement period, Mm. well, there might be a valid argument there or something along those lines. But there is a direct line between what happened then and what is happening now today in every aspect of life, from education to economics to health to the criminal punishment system, just direct linkages. And finally, what about the idea that
3: reparations would just be too hard? It would be impossible to figure out who should get them. It's too complicated. Let's just focus on. Social policy that can kind of address inequities.
4: So, one of the things I've seen is that this country doesn't seem to have a problem with allocating resources where there have been injustices. When COVID hit, oh my goodness, in record time, there were processes for dealing with that financially. I mean, everybody got some kind of check in the mail. (laughs) I'm just saying, as a result of that. And so, if this is a situation that had been rectified, In the past, we wouldn't be facing what we are facing today. And I submit, no, it would not be an insurmountable job. This is why these study commissions are so very important, to study the issues and determine the best way to just make it happen. It can be done. It's been done. And it's happened in the past. There's no reason why it should not happen now.
3: Activists are calling on the Biden administration to take action on reparations, especially since black voters turned out in droves for Democrats in the 2020 election. Coming up, where does that coalition stand now? In the spring, a diverse coalition of activists sent a letter to Joe Biden saying that he should create a task force to study reparations by executive action. The deadline that the group demanded was Juneteenth, 2022. Sadly, the White House did not respond. What do you make
4: of that? Well, I sure hope that he does do that. And I am chagrined that it did not happen by Juneteenth or even before that, which is what we had very, very strongly requested. There was a strategic reason as to that date of Juneteenth. just because we're coming up now close to the midterm elections. Joe Biden should know that he would not even be in office today, would it not have been for Black people. It is my hope that it will still happen. If not, we are in jeopardy or squandering this very historic moment that we find ourselves in now where the presidency, the House, and the Senate are all controlled by the Democrats. So not to take the bull by the horns and take advantage of this situation right here, right now, where we have more co-sponsors of the federally chartered bill to create this commission for reparations than we have ever had in history to squander this moment, I think will be very, very detrimental to the Democratic Party. And so you talk about
3: the moment that we're in, and you say that what we're doing right now is figuring out what reparations would look like. So what reparations framework are you working with right now? Like, what, in your mind, would reparations look like?
4: Well, you know, I always used to say, this is the province of the commission, bring all the experts together and all like that. But that train is already gone, because California is in the process right now. Evanston, Illinois has already started cutting checks for their housing issues I I never really thought that this moment would come. So I had not really given it a whole lot of thought. Back then when I was young, we used to just talk about money, just cash. My analysis has matured very much since that time. There is no amount, none, no amount of financial or any other sort of resources that will ever wholly pay for what Black people have gone through in this country, yes, yeah, scholarships can be part of it. The erection of monuments and museums can be part of it. Truthful textbooks can be a part of it. I mean, affirmative action could have been a form of reparations, actually, mm. uh, but then it was opened up to any and everybody and was watered down and diluted and all of those things. I mean, there's a lot of forms in which it can come. It can be pardons for political prisoners, those who resisted the COINTELPRO from the 60s and 70s, that's the FBI secret illegal program to disrupt and destroy the Black movement. There's so many corporations and companies out there that made their wealth on the backs of enslaved persons, Aetna, New York Live, financial giants, banks, all of the above. They need to put up the money. Religious institutions who sold slaves. Georgetown University stands today as a result of such a sale. So we're talking about federal government, state and local governments, academic institutions, religious institutions, private estates. All of these are culpable parties that should share in what the remedies would be once we determine and say it should be this. But I don't think it should just be one thing.
3: Mm. Is any part of you afraid that such a broad stance could jeopardize the chance that reparations would come, right? Because I've heard people say it's better if this is tighter, if it's concise, if it's clear. In the same way that the people who would be eligible, right? It, the more we narrow that group, the more of a chance we have for the the United States government to recognize this and take action.
4: So I believe in being more inclusive than exclusive. I like to be inclusive of as many. Black people as possible because, again, we as a group had genocide committed against us and those lingering impacts that are happening now, we as a group suffer from all of these different aspects. If I just chose one, then I don't think I would be fulfilling the international principle, making sure that these things don't happen
3: again. And you say that your thinking has kind of advanced, Over time, like, I'm wondering how class has come to fit into your view of what reparations could be like. And when we think about the racial wealth gap, there are people in the black community who do have wealth. Like, I know it's not something that's widespread, per se, when we talk about like intergenerational wealth. But just that question of like, should Beyonce from Texas get reparations? Should Rihanna from Barbados get reparations? Should Oprah, you know, who's been this figure of wealth be included in the call for reparations?
4: So this is where I might differ from some of my colleagues, because, again, in my mind, reparations is a debt that is owed, regardless of what your economic status may be. Just like in the law, if Brianna or Beyonce or Oprah goes out there and gets hit by that car, there is something that's due that's owed. I personally don't look at class when it comes to reparations, but I would like to look at education to ensure that those who have more do more with what they have.
3: Mm. And I mentioned where they were from, you know, like Beyonce from Texas and Rihanna from Barbados, just because, again, like Rihanna is an immigrant, came from Barbados, born in 88, came from Barbados much later. How does that factor in?
4: So this is a big controversial issue that is going on right now. One of these issues that we are grappling with Again, had reparations been afforded back at the time, right when our freedom was recognized with the 13th Amendment, we wouldn't be facing these issues today. But even Black immigrants who come over from other countries, many of them face the same obstacles that we face here. My own grandparents, as I said, on my mother's side were immigrants from the islands, but we're in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we're thoroughly enmeshed in being victims of Jim Crow apartheid era and all of the things that came as a result of that on my father's side from enslaved plantation. I don't know which plantation they came from. I just, I don't. And there are a lot of issues with proof of ancestry, DNA tests, records, body histories, and all that. This is one of the reasons why we don't talk about reparations solely for the enslavement era, but for everything that has gone on since the enslavement era, the living legacies that last down through today, which impact not only those born on this soil who have a direct ancestry back to the enslavement era, whether they can prove it or not.
3: Speaking of that exclusivity, like what do you make of divisions that we're already starting to see within the Black community that have formed in the wake of the reemergence of the reparations debate, whether it's, you know, people talking about their lineage How are we to move through this and have a process that is one that different voices can be heard?
4: So I've always been the first person to say that I don't have all the answers to everything. But what is needed is discussion and debate that in a civilized, respectful form. What I see happening is a lot of discussion and disagreements and debate, but it's not respectful. It is my hope that we as a people can come together in a respectful fashion and have these very, very necessary conversations. Everybody is not going to agree on everything, but our disagreements should be in a form of agreeing to disagree, educating the public and coming together with some type of negotiated settlement. Because if we don't do that, we're going to fall victim to the victimizations that we went through during the 60s and 70s. I'm seeing visions of that today. Don't want that to happen. I lived through that. Don't want that to happen. Another
3: online phenomenon that I've observed is in the wake of the racial reckoning, or as I like to say, the racial reckoning that wasn't of 2020, we saw a lot of Black people online saying, hey, if you, you know, care about justice, like, send me some money to my cash app. Here's my Venmo. And they'd be like, hashtag reparations. Like, you know, sending this money. This is reparations. So how do you feel about that? Like reparations being so online right now, does that belittle the call for reparations? People just saying send $20 to my cash app.
4: Uh, So again, in my humble opinion, reparations are the province of government, of institutions, of corporations, and of private estates as well. I don't call individual cash apping reparations. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. I mean, you know, if it makes white folk feel good, but that's not (laughs) reparation. What they need to be doing is calling upon their elected officials to do this on a statewide basis, on a federal basis, on a local community, city council type basis, as opposed to individual efforts. Let's say we do
3: in our lifetimes get to a point where the U.S. government hears black people out, hears out the activists who are pushing for reparations, and cash payments are doled out. Can black people then make further demands on the government after receiving reparations, whether that's policy or just any other requests for help?
4: As long as the injury continues, there should be amends. I know there are colleagues of mine who are here saying, well, once this is done, that's it. I think that's an erroneous philosophy. If the injury and harm repeats and continues, then the requirement for redress must continue as well. Mm. So
3: you have so much energy, Nikichi. What keeps you going? What keeps you hopeful that you'll see reparations in your lifetime?
4: Everything that's going on today leaves me very, very hopeful that it will, in fact, happen in my lifetime. And if not in my lifetime, the seeds have not only been sown, but they are sprouting and they're growing and developing. And I'm confident that there will be a national reckoning of race in America and that reckoning will not be complete until there is reparatory justice. So I would like to make sure that my ancestors, those whose feet I sat under, whose visions and deeds have basically been swept under the rug, that those caskets are open. Queen Mother Audley Moore, Kelly House, Imari Obadelli, Chokwe Lumumba, all of these people, Reparations Ray Jenkins, who talked about, taught, struggled tirelessly for issues, including reparations that their names and deeds are uplifted. That's why I say it's not just about a check that an individual does, it's institutions and policies and all of those things. I'm in brainstorming processes right now in terms of just what an appropriate, adequate, and respectful reparations package can and should look like for as many Black people as possible. Kishi, thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Thank you so very much for having me,
3: Fabiola. Next time in our mini-series, 40 Acres, the price of reparations.
5: That differential, that gives you a figure in the vicinity of $14 trillion.
3: I talked with scholars William Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen about how much reparations would cost, who would get them, and just how exactly the government could afford such a big check. This episode was produced by John and Hill. The Vox Conversations team includes Eric Janikas and Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. And A.M. Hall is our Deputy Editorial Director.